Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Five are killed following a Japan Airlines crash. A powerful earthquake strikes Japan. South Korea's opposition leader is stabbed. Israel's High Court of Justice strikes down Netanyahu's judicial reform. Danish Queen Margrethe II abdicates. An armed man breaks into the Colorado Judicial Center. Police say there's not evidence of terrorism in the New Year's Eve Rochester car crash. Ethiopia signs a historic path to use Somaliland's Red Sea port. Kim Jong-un orders the military to annihilate South Korea and the U.S. if provoked. UK small boat channel crossings fell by 36% in 2023. And early versions of Mickey and Minnie Mouse enter the public domain. Our top story, a Japan Airlines crash. Five are killed and 379 escape the runway blaze. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Sky News, The Menichi, The National, New York Times, and Forbes. Five of the six crew members on board a Japanese Coast Guard aircraft were killed after a Japan Airlines plane collided with it upon landing at Tokyo's Haneda Airport on Tuesday. All 367 passengers and 12 crew members of the passenger jet, which burst into a ball of fire after the collision, evacuated and were rescued. Japan's transport minister, Setsu Saito, confirmed the casualties and said the pilot of the Coast Guard plane, which was headed to Nilgata Airport on Japan's west coast to deliver aid to the earthquake-hit Noto Peninsula region, was able to escape. Live footage on public broadcaster NHK showed the Japan Airlines plane engulfed in fire as it taxied on the runway and passengers fleeing the burning aircraft through an emergency chute. As the fire quickly expanded, the hull of the Japan Airlines Airbus A350 broke in two. The Haneda Airport reportedly closed all runways after the incident, as firefighters worked to extinguish the blaze. Meanwhile, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has asked relevant ministers to investigate the incident, while Saito says his officials have been taking necessary steps to get the airport entirely reopened. Scott, thanks for presenting the facts. During this podcast, we separate the spin from the facts. Our first spin for this story is Narrative A coming from Wall Street Journal. A more horrific disaster was averted. The Japan Airlines cabin crew and airport authorities must be commended for pulling off a miracle. It's next to impossible to rescue 379 people from a fireball-like accident. However, the passenger plane's crew safely evacuated everyone before the aircraft split into two and officials on the ground ensured that the accident didn't affect deliveries of earthquake relief supplies or cause damage to parked planes. Despite the tragic loss of life from this incident, a truly horrific catastrophe was avoided. And Narrative B comes from CNN. The evacuation of the Japan Airlines plane should indeed be praised as a success. However, the investigators must find all answers, including how the aircraft, which had no engine problem or issued no mayday alert, and entered the runway as normal for landing, skidded down the tarmac and collided with a Coast Guard's maritime patrol plane after landing. An in-depth probe must be conducted to ensure a similar disaster never occurs again. Tragedy continues in Japan as 57 have been killed in a powerful earthquake. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the Sydney Morning Herald, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and Washington Post. 
As of Tuesday, at least 57 have been killed in the 7.6 magnitude earthquake that struck near the Noto Peninsula in Japan's Ishikawa Prefecture on New Year's Day, leaving many trapped in collapsed buildings and at least 32,000 homes without power. As giant sea waves were recorded in some areas, tsunami warnings were issued for the coast of the Sea of Japan. Since multiple aftershocks continued to hit the country throughout the day, thousands of residents were asked to evacuate to higher ground. The tsunami warnings along some of Japan's western coasts were lifted Tuesday. Neighboring Russia and South Korea also asked people in coastal areas to take precautions. Meanwhile, rail, telephone, and internet services were disrupted in Ishikawa and Niigata. A Japanese government spokesperson said that Monday's earthquake hadn't affected nuclear plants in the impacted areas and that no irregularities had been reported in their radiation levels. According to authorities, the Shika nuclear plant in Ishikawa, located close to the earthquake's epicenter, had already shut down its two reactors for inspection earlier and suffered no damage from the quake. In 2011, at least 18,000 people were killed in Japan after a 9.0 magnitude earthquake struck off the northeastern coast of Honshu, set off 130-feet high waves, and damaged the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, triggering one of the worst nuclear disasters in history. Thanks, Eric. Trinity College brings us Narrative A. A seismically vulnerable nation, Japan's tsunami solution is still mostly a work in progress, with no single-point answer yet on the horizon. It remains much to learn, and existing countermeasures are constantly being refined and improved. Strategic locations of buildings, vegetation, seawalls, buffer zones, and tsunami warning zones are only some of the steps the nation has already taken, besides developing strong government-public coordination and understanding. Narrative B comes from World Bank. Prevention and precaution are, of course, the touchstones of any disaster management policy. Nevertheless, that doesn't take away from the need to prepare for the aftermath. Japan's 2011 experience has taught the nation that laying out a plan for eventualities is paramount, be it creating business continuity blueprints or prearranged agreements with private and public institutions to coordinate and manage rescue and resettlement. More needs to be done. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's an 18% chance there will be a tsunami that kills at least 50,000 people before the year 2030. Scott, you used to live in the Ring of Fire, right? I did, yeah. I lived in San Francisco and Seattle for a while. And it's weird. People just kind of get numb to the potential danger. You know, you just get tired of talking about it and you just kind of live your life. What most people don't know is that you're literally floating out on the North Sea in an 80-foot catamaran. <laughs> yeah, that's the only life for me. Yeah. <laughs> South Korea's opposition leader is recovering from surgery following a knife attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Korea Joongang Daily, Korea Times, Korea Herald, CBS, BBC News, and Yonhap News Agency. South Korea's Democratic Party stated on Tuesday that its chairman, Lee Jae-moon, had his emergency surgery completed at Seoul National University Hospital after being stabbed in the neck in the port city of Busan, with his progress closely monitored. The Democratic Party spokesperson added that Lee was recovering in the intensive care unit following a two-hour successful operation to repair his jugular vein as he sustained a one-centimeter wound to the left side of his neck. The main opposition leader was airlifted to Seoul from Busan National University Hospital, Busan, where he arrived about 20 minutes after a man in his 60s attacked him with a knife after apparently asking for his autograph. The assailant was arrested at the scene and reportedly confessed to the attempted assassination. 
The late morning stabbing came as Lee walked through a crowd of reporters after finishing a visit to the construction site of a new airport on Gaidok Island off Busan before a planned lunch with former President Moon Jae-in ahead of elections in April. Lee has narrowly lost the 2022 presidential elections by a margin of just 0.7 percentage points, the closest race ever in the country. He has vocally criticized President Yoon Suk-yul since then, but he has faced growing divisions within his party over multiple corruption allegations. Though the crime rate is generally lower in South Korea, the country is not immune to physical assaults with weapons on politicians, as party leaders have been attacked with objects at least two other times this century. In addition, in 1979, then-President Park Chung-hee was shot and killed by his spy chief at a private dinner. Scott, thank you for the facts. Narrative A is our first spin for this story. It comes from Dim Sum Daily. This shocking knife attack reflects how politically polarized South Korea is. The South risks descending into destructive chaos where incidents of political violence may be normalized if leaders from both sides fail to address their root causes. South Korea must isolate extremists and promote reconciliation to heal society. Narrative B comes from Gulf Today. It's unlikely that an alleged surge in political violence is behind this stabbing. As previously seen in South Korea and also in Japan, individual assailants are often either mentally insane or have personal grudges toward political leaders and may seize the opportunity to easily attack their targets when not in office. Rather than focusing on extremists, officials should improve accountability and openness. And the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 10% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a unified sovereign state by 2045. I can't imagine, Erica, slashed to the jugular. I, for real, right after Thanksgiving, I sliced the very corner of my finger right off. I couldn't get it to stop bleeding. I had to go to the urgent care to get them to stop it bleeding. I was holding pressure. I was, I was doing everything. It just kept going. And that was just a little nick on my finger. Eric, are you uh, are you still with me? Uh, sorry, buddy. Oh, Scott, I'm so sorry, man. My hemophobia flared up. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry for you. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. News from Israel as the high court strikes down a judicial reform. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, Jurist, Haaretz, BBC News, and France 24. Israel's High Court of Justice on Monday struck down the only piece of legislation so far passed by the country's parliament relating to the highly contentious judicial reform agenda of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. The ruling was especially significant as it saw 12 out of the 15 judges declare that the High Court of Justice had the power to review the country's basic laws. Eight out of 15 justices ruled against the amendment the Israeli parliament made in July to the basic law on the judiciary which would have removed the top court's right to strike down any government decision deemed, quote, unreasonable. The, quote, reasonableness law passed by the Knesset in July has been viewed by some as a severe threat to the country's judicial system. It has also become a highly controversial proposal, as if passed, it would enact fundamental changes to Israeli democracy. July's amendment was a crucial part of Netanyahu's judicial reform agenda that has led to intense polarization in Israel. Though the nation put aside its differences in the wake of Hamas's October 7th attack, Monday's ruling could reopen the political debate. The government managed to get the reasonableness law passed after abandoning the pursuit of more extreme reforms back in March. Protests and civil unrest sparked at the time by the proposed overhaul were so serious they threatened Israel's military preparedness. Thanks, Eric. We have left and right narrative spins on this story. Let's start with the left spin from Jerusalem Post. A well-thought-out constitution provides the scaffolding of reason and justice to a democracy. 
Israel's lack of a constitution is partly made up for by the reasonableness doctrine and the venerable basic laws, which together give the judiciary an oversight into lawmaking in the country, as well as the essential guardrails to keep laws from turning abusive. Benjamin Netanyahu's government looked to rampage through these safeguards, but now it's been stopped right in its tracks. The right narrative comes from Al Monitor. The government of Israel has long been operating with one arm tied behind its back. Judicial interference cannot be allowed to suppress the voice and aspirations of a nation's majority without undermining democracy. Benjamin Netanyahu's proposed judicial reforms seek to bring a semblance of balance to governance in Israel. Monday's pushback by the judiciary has only proven the government's point all over again. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Benjamin Netanyahu will cease to be Prime Minister of Israel by January of 2025. Danish Queen Margrethe II abdicates the throne after a 52-year reign. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, The Telegraph, Al Jazeera, The Times, Business Insider, and Politico. Queen Margrethe II of Denmark unexpectedly announced live on television in her New Year's Eve address that she would formally step down from her position on January 14th, the anniversary of the exact same day that she ascended to the throne after the death of her father, King Frederick IX, in 1972. The 83-year-old, who became the longest-serving monarch in Europe since the death of Britain's Queen Elizabeth II in September 2022, is the longest-reigning monarch in Danish history. She has allegedly broken a tacit agreement with her fellow Scandinavian monarchs. The 77-year-old King Carl XVI Gustav of Sweden and the 86-year-old King Harald V of Norway to never step down, fueling speculations that they could also hand over their crown soon. During her speech, the outgoing queen pointed out that back surgery she underwent in February last year had prompted her to think about the future, including making room for the next generation. However, Danish royal experts claim that the surprise abdication could be a deliberate strategy to save the marriage of her son and heir, Crown Prince Frederick, to the nation's beloved Princess Mary, amid rumors that he had an affair with a Mexican socialite in Madrid in November. Frederick and the Australian-born Mary Elizabeth Donaldson married in 2004, four years after they first met at a bar during the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney. There will be no formal crowning ceremony on the day of his ascension, only an announcement from a Mielenborg Castle in Copenhagen. Scott, thanks for the facts. We begin the round of spins with a right narrative coming from The Spectator, UK. Time takes its toll, and even a brilliant monarch like Queen Margrethe II must leave the responsibility to the next generation. During her five-decade reign, her communication skills restored support for the monarchy in the fairly homogenous and patriotic country of six million people. What a blessing it would be if King Charles could deliver his messages, as she does, directly and forthright. And a left narrative spin from The Guardian. A political system in which heads of state and other high officials are determined by birthright has inherent flaws. But it's even worse that most of them are fitted with such power to their death. As Queen Margrethe II follows her fellow monarchs from Belgium, the Netherlands, and Spain in abdicating to keep institutions functioning properly, Britain should learn at least this lesson if no constitutional reform is to be made. We're checking out Metaculus, and they have a nerd narrative for this story. There's a 54% chance that Belgium, the Netherlands, Norway, Spain, and Sweden will all have Queen's regnant simultaneously before the year 2100. Scott, you've got stroke in Denmark, don't you? You eat Danishes all the time, man. I, I do. I, I've seen you. Yeah, I don't really like riding a bike that much, though. That's what, that, that's what dings me. You would be a shoe-in. A wooden shoe-in. Absolutely, a wooden shoe-in. <laughs> 
According to a recent police report, the Colorado Supreme Court shooting is very likely not tied to a Trump ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Fox News, CBS, Colorado Public Radio, The Colorado Sun, and Forbes. An armed man broke into the Ralph L. Carr Colorado Judicial Center, which houses the Colorado Supreme Court, early Tuesday morning firing several shots before turning himself in to the authorities. The suspect entered the Denver building after two cars crashed at 13th Avenue and Lincoln Street at 1.15 a.m. local time. A man involved pointed a handgun at the other driver and proceeded to shoot at the east side of the judicial center. Shortly after, the gunman breached the courthouse and held an unarmed security guard at gunpoint, taking his keys to access other parts of the building. The suspect went up to the seventh floor, where he fired more shots before calling 911 to surrender to authorities at 3 a.m. The Denver Police Department said no one was injured during the incident, but there was significant and extensive damage done to the building, according to the Colorado State Patrol. The suspect was later taken to a local hospital for medical evaluation. The incident comes after the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that former President Donald Trump was banned from appearing on the state's Republican presidential primary ballot. Despite speculation, the Colorado Supreme Court released a bulletin mid-morning Tuesday local time saying that there is a high probability that the incident is, quote, not associated to the recent threats against the Colorado Supreme Court justices. Following the controversial 4-3 decision, the court's justices reportedly received a series of threats. However, the Denver Police Department says that the threat it investigated last week was a, quote, hoax. The U.S. Supreme Court will likely weigh on whether Trump can appear on primary ballots. All right, thanks, Eric. The Gateway Pundit brings us the Republican narrative. Everyone knows that the Colorado Supreme Court is thwarting democracy with its attempt to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's Republican presidential primary ballot. And this incident has nothing to do with that injustice. It's extremely bad faith and dangerous to make this correlation in today's polarized, left-leaning media environment. Thankfully, no one was hurt, and hopefully Colorado shows that it cares about the will of its people. The Democratic narrative comes from CNN. While Tuesday's shooting currently doesn't appear to be related to the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to remove Donald Trump from the primary ballot, there are still threats against the court's justices from the MAGA extremists. The insurrection on January 6th showed that Trump's fanatical supporters will resort to violence to defend him, and police should not let their guards down. Right-wing extremism is still a major threat, and the Colorado Supreme Court justices must continue to be protected. And another nerd narrative from Attaculus, there's a 90% chance that Donald Trump's name will appear on the ballot in the state of Colorado on Election Day if he is the Republican nominee for president. Police claim no evidence of terrorism in the Rochester car crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Fox News, Forbes, NBC, CNN, and The New York Post. Rochester, New York Police Chief David Smith said Tuesday there is no evidence yet of terrorism related to the fatal car crash outside the Kodak Center after midnight on January 1st. While he said it was not abnormal for their joint terrorism task force to be involved in the investigation, they have uncovered no evidence of an ideology and no nexus to terrorism, either international or domestic. Meanwhile, the FBI has reportedly opened its investigation into a potential act of domestic terrorism. The incident occurred at around 2 a.m. Monday morning local time outside the Kodak Center, where 1,000 people were gathered to see a local band play. As police were conducting a traffic patrol, a Ford SUV crashed into another SUV, killing two and injuring several pedestrians in the crosswalk. The suspect, Michael Avery, 35, is believed to have traveled to Rochester in his personal vehicle, after which he rented a Ford Expedition at the Rochester airport. 
According to Smith, Avery then made at least half a dozen purchases of gasoline and gas containers at different locations between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. on December 30th. After firefighters put out the fire from the crash for nearly an hour, Smith said they found at least a dozen gasoline canisters in and around the striking vehicle, after which the Rochester Police Department bomb squad and the Joint Arson Task Force responded to the scene. After conducting a search warrant of a hotel room Avery rented, police said they thought he may have been an emotionally disturbed man. After analyzing Avery's journal and interviewing his family members, they added that he may have undiagnosed bipolar disorder. They also discovered a suicide note and journal in the hotel room. Avery was not immediately killed at the scene, but later died from his injuries. A total of five pedestrians were injured, one of whom was dealing with life-threatening injuries, according to Smith. Scott, thanks for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from the website of Congressman Seth Moulton. Mass killings today are often part of a broader online network, either officially or unofficially, of enablers who push potential perpetrators to commit acts of violence in public. Under the current law, whereby domestic killers are charged only with regular criminal codes, police are unable to go after those who are egging on and supporting domestic terrorists. If these dangerous actions are designated as terrorism, not only will police have more resources to investigate killings, but work to prevent them in the first place. Politico brings us narrative B. Violent acts should be punished, but broadening the definition of terrorism would go beyond acts and criminalize beliefs. U.S. law enforcement has already discriminated against Muslims by quickly deeming them terrorists, while their non-Muslim counterparts are lone wolves. However, broadening the definition to allow the government to oppress more ideologies linked to past violent attacks from animal rights activists to white supremacists would only create a more dystopian and intrusive police state. The nerds of Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that the U.S. murder rate will be at least 5.65 per 100,000 inhabitants in 2030. Ethiopia signs a historic pact to use Somaliland's Red Sea port. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, PBS NewsHour, Adis Standard, Voice of America, France 24, and BBC News. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed announced the signing of a historic agreement on Monday that will permit the usage of the Red Sea port of Berbera in Somalia's breakaway region of Somaliland, giving Ethiopia direct maritime transport access and expanding its access to seaports. As part of the Memorandum of Understanding, Somaliland President Muz Bihi Abdi said at the signing ceremony in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, that Somaliland intends to lease a 20-kilometer or 12.4-mile strip along its coast to landlock Ethiopia for the establishment of a base for marine forces. Under the bilateral agreement, Addis Ababa would also formally recognize Somaliland as an independent state, making Ethiopia the first country to acknowledge statehood for the breakaway region, it added. The Ethiopian Prime Minister's office did not comment directly on the recognition of Somalia as an independent republic, but noted that the agreement promotes, quote, mutual interests through cooperation on the basis of reciprocity. It also emphasized the steppe's huge significance for the Horn of Africa's regional integration. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, Somalia Prime Minister Hamza Abdi Bare condemned the bilateral agreement as a violation of its sovereignty and territorial integrity and recalled its ambassador to Ethiopia for consultations. He then announced that the East African country would defend its territory by, quote, all legal means possible. 
Having seceded from Somalia over 30 years ago, Somaliland is not officially recognized as an independent state by either the African Union or the United Nations. With more than 100 million inhabitants, Ethiopia is the world's most populous landlocked country and lost its access to the Red Sea when Eritrea declared independence in the early 1990s. All right, Eric, we have a Narrative A from Horn Observer. The landmark agreement is a first step toward restoring Ethiopia's historic right of access to the Red Sea. It's also a step that not only advances regional integration, but allows the Ethiopian government to continue its leadership in maintaining peace and stability in the region. It should also be noted that Somalia previously rejected a request from Ethiopia for talks on granting maritime access. Furthermore, it's Mogadishu that is deliberately undermining regional peace by supporting Egypt's hardline position on the Ethiopian Nile Dam dispute for geopolitical reasons. The agreement proves yet again the Ethiopian regime's blatant disregard for international law. The memorandum is not worth the paper it is written on, as Somaliland is an integral part of Somali territory, according to the Somali constitution. That the deal was signed only days after the breakthrough agreement between Mogadishu and Hargeisa is a deliberate provocation by the Abiy regime which wants to profit from domestic Somali tensions. It's now up to the international community to put pressure on Addis Ababa to prevent a possible escalation into a regional conflict. And Metaculus strikes again with a nerd narrative. There's a 30% chance that Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed will experience a significant leadership disruption before 2025. Kim Jong-un orders his military to annihilate South Korea and the U.S. if provoked. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Don.com, CNN, WION News, South China Morning Post, the Associated Press, and Al Jazeera. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has ordered his military to thoroughly annihilate South Korea and the U.S. if either country opts for military confrontation against Pyongyang, state media reported Monday. At a meeting with his commanding officers on Sunday, Kim reportedly said the DPRK Army should mobilize all the toughest means and potentialities without moment's hesitation, and deal a deadly blow to any threatening actions to the regime. Kim said the country needed to sharpen its treasured sword, allegedly referencing Pyongyang's nuclear weapons program, as a matter of national security. Arguing that North Korea must develop an overwhelming war response capability, Kim announced plans to launch three more spy satellites, enhance electronic warfare capacities, build autonomous drones, and expand the country's nuclear arsenal and missile forces in 2024. Previously, Kim had instructed the country's army, munitions industry, nuclear weapons, and civil defense sectors to hasten preparations for war with South Korea and the U.S. He said they had declared North Korea as the main enemy and were seeking a regime collapse and unification by absorption. Kim's comments came two weeks after the U.S. warned Pyongyang that a nuclear attack on South Korea would evoke a swift, overwhelming, and decisive response from Washington and would mark the end of Kim's regime. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. There's a round of spins, and it begins with a pro-North Korean narrative coming from France 24. Kim Jong-un will never give up the nuclear weapons program as it's essential for the DPRK's survival. The North Korean leader is simply boosting national defenses to prepare for a war that can break out any time on the peninsula. Thanks to Washington, which has deployed a nuclear-powered submarine in South Korea and is conducting joint drills as, quote, intentional nuclear war provocative moves. And the anti-North Korea narrative from Bloomberg. 
North Korea's nuclear weapons pose an existential threat to South Korea and the U.S. Since 2022, Pyongyang has conducted over 100 missile tests, launched a reconnaissance satellite, and test-fired the most advanced intercontinental ballistic missile in its arsenal, prompting Seoul and Washington to expand their joint military drills. It isn't the U.S., but North Korea that's being reckless and provocative. Metaculus once again has a nerd narrative. They say there's a 15% chance of a full-scale war between North Korea and South Korea by the year 2050. According to the United Kingdom, small boat channel crossings fell 36% in 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Migration Watch UK, the official website of the government of the United Kingdom, and BBC News. Data from the UK government shows there were about 30,000 migrants detected crossing the English Channel in 2023, down from more than 45,000 the year prior, a decrease of approximately 36%. 2023's provisional statistic sits higher than 2021, which saw 28,500 migrants cross the English Channel. Comparatively, there were 8,500 crossings in 2020, 1,800 crossings in 2019, and 300 crossings in 2018. In total, 114,300 migrants have entered the UK via small boats since January 2018. 15,300 crossings have been made since the implementation of the Illegal Migration Act in July of 2023, while 64,800 have entered since the UK's first scheduled Rwanda flight in June 2022 and 28,200 since the pledge to, quote, stop the boats in January 2023. Commenting on the data, UK, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has claimed that he is determined to end the burden of illegal migration, while the Home Office called its work on reducing small boat crossings, quote, robust in comparison to an 80% rise in European sea crossings. In response to the data, the Immigration Services Union claimed that 2023's decrease in channel crossings was a, quote, glitch, that there had been, quote, confounding factors such as particularly high winds, and that 2024 was likely to see greater numbers of crossings. All right. Thanks, Eric. We have right and left narratives on this story as well, starting with the right spin from The Telegraph. With stopping the boats being one of Sunak's core pledges having entered office, the Home Office's statistics are a welcome return for the government and a positive start to 2024. While it's clear there is much more to do, and the near-record channel crossing levels seen in 2021 will not satisfy anyone, progress is certainly being made, especially compared to the dangerous upward trends being witnessed across the rest of Europe. The Huffington Post gives us a left narrative. With 2023 being the second highest year for channel crossings since the problems rise, Sunak has in no way delivered on his promise and finished 2023 having completed only one of his five pledges. The administration has failed to remedy the problem created on its own watch and continues to hedge bets on popularity via gimmick policies, such as the Rwanda bill, rather than truly attempting to revive the UK. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 90% chance that the Labour Party will have a majority in the House of Commons after the next UK general election. Our final story, early versions of Mickey and Minnie Mouse enter the public domain. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Verge, The Guardian, Newsweek, and NPR Online News. As of Monday, the Walt Disney movie Steamboat Willie has moved into the public domain meaning the Mickey Mouse character from this feature can be creatively used in new works. With the release of Steamboat Willie and a version of Plain Crazy, an early iteration of Minnie Mouse has also migrated to the public domain. 
Among the other works now in the public domain as of January 1st, 2024, are J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, Virginia Woolf's Orlando, and Tigger, a friend of Winnie the Pooh. However, new versions of Mickey, including from the 1940 movie Fantasia, and the Disney Channel Mickey Mouse Clubhouse version that ran for a decade beginning in 2006, remain under copyright. The copyright on Steamboat Willie Mickey and other 1928 works and creations originally was scheduled to expire in 1984, and then again in 1998, but each time Disney lobbied to have U.S. copyright laws changed to maintain control of their original version of Mickey. Shortly after the early version of Mickey Mouse entered the public domain, a trailer for a horror film featuring the character was released online, and other internet works began featuring Mickey Mouse in various roles not typically associated with Disney's friendly character. Scott, thank you for the facts. Narrative A is our first spin. It's coming from New York Times. Moving works like Steamboat Willie Mickey into the public domain helps feed the veins of creativity and inspiration of modern-day artists. A wide array of new ideas are already being formulated by artists and writers alike, and the other characters, songs, and stories that can now be used in various mediums. Building off these works keeps the arts going. And Narrative B comes from Forbes. Whether the arts will be advanced by these works becoming part of the public domain remains to be seen. In the past, in this situation, we've seen beloved characters used for untasteful derivative purposes that do nothing but allow creators to make a quick buck through crass internet monetization. Already Mickey is popping up in works that will do nothing but make the public miss the true intent of the original art form. The nerds of Metaculus say there's a 69% chance that at least 10 of the 20 highest grossing new movies in the year 2050 will be remakes of previous movies or continuations of previous movie franchises. Oh man, I'm sorry, Scott. I was, wait, let me pause this. I'm watching Mickey of the Corn. Oh God. (laughs) I I mean, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure if you search a little further, you can find Mickey of the Porn. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.